But I want to preach to you for the next few weeks about the Warfare Handbook. I want to talk about spiritual warfare, the Warfare Handbook. And I want you to understand where we're diving in today because it's not going to be like any type of spiritual warfare material that you've heard before. I'm looking at it from a very, very practical approach because I often think that sometimes we get so spiritually minded and so intense as people, especially people who understand warfare, that we let the everyday practical things hold us back from really obtaining the full promise of God. So what happens is we're quoting scripture and we're praying and we're doing this and, you know, we're leaning in and we're fighting the devil and we're casting out demons and binding it. What's in heaven is bound and we're doing all these things, but we forgot to love one another. And so our spiritual warfare is nothing but a bunch of works and it's really not producing anything in our life because we forgot some basic principles. You with me? So we're going to look at this over the next several weeks of some very, very practical things that I think you can store in your warfare handbook. Because whether you believe it or not, the Bible does say that Satan goes around like a roaring lion. He, he's seeking people that he can attack and devour. And you know, I'm not one of those preachers who assigns everything to the enemy. I was uh, talking with some people and they you know, told me that, well, they're under attack in their spiritual warfare because some things weren't working out for them. And I'm like, it's not that you're under attack, it's that your computer is like 30 years old and it can't do what you want it to do. So I don't know that it's spiritual warfare as much cyber limitations. Are you with me, somebody? So I never want to err on the side of, well, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't make you do it. You chose to get up and do it yourself. Uh, he didn't make you do anything. And a lot of the things that we assign as spiritual warfare in our life, I honestly do not believe, is of the devil. Some of it, I and mean, the majority of it, I believe, are results of our very own life choices. Come on, somebody. Some of the physical things that we're dealing with isn't a result of the enemy attacking our body. It's a result of decades of neglect of our bodies. Preaching myself. Come on. <laughs> So we need to be careful of, of, of saying, well, well, no, no, the devil's trying to attack me physically. No, you're manifesting what you have been living. Amen. That's all. It's just a manifestation. You don't pay attention to the relationships in your life of your, your spouse and your children, even your church relationships, because anything that you're not paying attention to always is wither, withering away and dying. So you don't pay attention to the relationships that God's invested into your life. What's going to happen is they're going to fall apart. Well, the enemy's attacking my marriage. No, it's not attacking your marriage. You just neglected your spouse. All right. I didn't even get, I didn't even get to the scripture yet. So anyway, you can tell I'm passionate about this because, you know, I grew up in an era and a lot of the teaching in the church was there's a demon around every corner, and there probably is. But the fact of the matter is greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. So I'm not possessed by a devil. I can't be possessed by a devil. Why? Because I have the Holy Spirit on the inside of me. I can be oppressed. I can have a devil speaking in my ear and mind and trying to convince me of something, but it can't possess me. Why? Because Jesus Christ possesses me. So because the greater one lives in me, when I walk into a room, they go running out. So I'm not afraid. I'm not worried. I'm not any of those things. And yes, some things happen in life as a result of an attack of the enemy. But maybe you were in the car accident because you weren't paying attention, putting on makeup, eating a sandwich, watching TikToks on your phone, and driving 20 miles too fast. Maybe that's the reason. All right. We got that down? 
All right. And maybe it was an attack of the enemy. I don't know. But I'm just saying, it's just that it's just not, it's easy to assign everything to the devil. And I just don't think he's that powerful. I just don't think, and to be honest with you, sometimes I'm like, I just don't know that I'm that high up on his radar. I mean, I think I'm good, but I don't know if in the scope of the world, he's like, let's, let's do that one in. So anyway, <laughs> Isaiah 43, 16. Isaiah 43, 16. So warfare handbook, some practical things to help us wage a good warfare. And this verse of scripture is God and he's speaking to the prophet and here's what he says. He says, I am the Lord who opened a way through the waters, making a dry path through the sea. I called forth the mighty army of Egypt with all of its chariots and horses. And I could preach right there the fact that he says, I called forth. Come on, because see, if that was us today, we'd say, well, the devil's pursuing me. The devil's chasing me. And God's speaking through the prophet and saying, I called forth the chariots. I called them. All right. So not only may it not be the devil, it may be God trying to set you up in your life to have the enemy pursuing you. Mountains on either side of you and a Red Sea in front of you. Why? Because he wants to prove to you his goodness and his faithfulness. So maybe it wasn't so much that the enemy was attacking me as God was trying to put me on display that he could get glory through my life by others seeing what he did as a miracle. All right. So maybe you didn't lose the job because your boss is an idiot. Maybe you lost the job because God's trying to let some other people see he wants to do something bigger for you. Take that as a word if you want it. All right, moving on. He says, I drew them beneath the water, speaking of the the Egyptian uh, enemy. Then they drowned, their lives snuffed out like a smoldering candle wick. And listen to this. Here's what I want us to hang around today. But forget all that. Everybody say that with me. But forget all that. It is nothing compared to what I'm going to do. For I'm about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. What if God has already started something that you're waiting on? What if the answer that you've been waiting on is already in motion to your door? What if the thing that's deepest in your heart that you've been praying about and waiting about and it's been keeping you up at night, what if it's already started? And what if God's biggest question is, but can you not see it? Can you not see it? The title of my message today is called Stuck in Nostalgia. I don't know how many of you in the room are a very nostalgic person. I probably am the reigning king of nostalgic people. Um, just so you know, I, I am, I, if it happened in my life, I've got a piece of it. It's, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, I have the, the 1970 stereo system in the closet in my office that my mother believed the Lord for. Why? I don't know. But it speaks to me, and it's about a season. And many of you in the room, you bear witness. You're a very nostalgic person, and, and you think that way. And a lot of times you can tell if you're a nostalgic person because you like Christmas, and those seasons are really big for you because it gives you all the feels. And really what you're trying to do is you're trying to recreate those moments and those memories because that's what nostalgia does. It takes us back to the memories that we once had. 
that we're good. So we want that. We crave that. Sometimes we raise our kids and we say, well, I want them to do that because I did that and it was so good. And they're like, but I hate, I hate that. And you're like, oh, well, but just do it. It's good, right? I have a good, because I'm nostalgic. So it's like, no, I want you to have what I had. And, and we, we, we can live that way sometimes. And others of you, you're like, I don't, couldn't care less. I'll throw it away, move on, and be gone from me. I, but I, I'm here to preach to, to the nostalgic people today. There's a lot of good in being nostalgic. There's, there's a lot of good things in it. But I, I want us to hear today that nostalgia can be a trap. That can cause us to lose in our spiritual warfare. Yep, I'm preaching about spiritual warfare and nostalgia. Trust me, you'll get it. Nostalgia can be a trap of the adversary. Because if we can be so focused on the way that it used to be, that we can actually miss the moment that we're in. And that can be a trap. Is to miss what God's doing in this moment and what he wants to say and how he wants to be because we're stuck on how something used to be and how it was. So God wants to speak to the people of Israel when he's speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And the nation of Israel was an incredibly nostalgic people. There was so much storytelling of their past and their history and their meals and their celebration. They're all focused around repeating what God had done in the past. And don't get me wrong, God had established many of those, those celebrations. And he, he wanted the stories to, to continue to be so, told from generation to generation. It was a, a God thing. But they were also getting stuck in their nostalgia. So they would begin to look in the rearview mirror and there was no greater figure in the rearview mirror of Israel and for the Jewish pe people than a man named Moses. Like in their rearview mirror and, you know, all the nostalgic feelings was Moses that God sent in to speak to Pharaoh and brought down the plagues and all this incredible stuff began to happen. So God's speaking to the prophet in Isaiah and he's actually trying to encourage them. Because right after what we just read in the book of Isaiah, the prophet begins to prophesy about a punishment that's coming. Because Israel had turned their backs on God, and they had begun to worship other idols. And God was saying, listen, because you've turned your back on me, the Babylonians are going to come in, and the Syrians are going to come in, and they're going to take you hostage, and again, you're going to be prisoners in a foreign land. You're again going to be slaves in a foreign land because you've turned your back on me. But he says, in the, in the midst of that, here's my promise. And he brings up one of the most epic stories in the Jewish people's history. Don't you remember? Moses. Don't you remember how you came across the Red Sea? Don't you remember how when the Israelites were, or the Egyptians were chasing you from behind and I drowned them? Don't you remember? And he says, in spite of everything that's going to happen to you, forget about that. Forget about that. Passover is all about that. Forget about that. God, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? What are you saying? And it's interesting that God would say this to the nation of Israel 
in advance of the pain that they're about to walk through. I want you to understand that when God is speaking through the prophet, Moses had happened about 500 years before this. 500 years before this. So here they are 500 years later, and their favorite bedtime story is still Moses parting the Red Sea. Their favorite song to sing in kids' class is, uh, the horse and the rider got thrown into the sea. Anybody in church in the 80s remember? I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider got thrown into the sea. It's one of the first songs I, I led in kids' class as a kid. I thought that song was hot at the day, man. How that bridge, it was so good. Anyway, I'm nostalgic. What do you want from me? <laughs> so 500 years later, they're still reminiscing this miracle. They're still remembering what God had done. And God's telling them, listen, it's about to get hard again. It's about to get rough for you again. You're about to go back into slavery, and they're thinking about Egypt. So God looks at him and says, remember all that? Remember my miracle? Forget about it. That little Italian, forget about it. Just forget about it. Most of us would hear in our faith, don't forget what God has done. And there's truth in that. There's scripture in that. Don't forget where he's brought you from. But what he's saying is you can't get stuck in where you've been. Don't allow your nostalgia to keep you from experiencing what God wants to do in a new season because nostalgia can be a trap. Nostalgia can cloud you. When it comes to moving forward, when it comes to gaining ground, when it comes to spiritual warfare, nostalgia can cloud you. It can happen in your own personal life. It can happen in your spiritual life. And here's how it manifests. You're always comparing your current situation with a good thing that God did for you five years ago. And here's how that sounds. God was better to me then. It was a better season when. There's no better season for you than the season you're living in right now. Is God still God? And is he still in control? And is he still on the throne? And if he is, there's no better place to be than right in the center of his perfect will and doing exactly what you're doing. Come on, somebody. So you can spot it when we begin to say things like, uh, God was better to me then. And, 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 you know, I felt his presence then. And now I just don't feel it like I felt it back then. Uh-oh. So you're wanting the God that was and not the God that is. All right, I'm going to move on. I'm letting it all sink in. So nostalgia can cloud you. I remember, because I'm a nostalgic person, we uh, got to move into the neighborhood where I had grown up in. And uh, before my mom had passed, I was telling her that I'm, I'm thinking about moving back to our neighborhood, and I told her the house that, that we were going to move in, and, and, or that I was looking at at the time, and I remember I said, Mom, because she was living with me at the time, she was sick and going through some treatment, and I said, Mom, do you want to go back there? And her response was very different than mine. She's like, no, why would I want to go back there? That was such a hard time of my life. And I was like five, six, so it was the best time of my life. So 
there are two very opposing realities of a situation. So here, I'm like, well, it was great then. Like, everybody was happy and everything was wonderful. My experience was very different than her experience. I see it happen all the time in the church. And it happens quite often if you grew up in the church and you've been around for a little bit and saved for a little bit. There are some memories attached to some things, right? There are some things that you have because you've been in the church for a while. There are some Bible translations that you personally prefer over another. Why? Because at somewhere in your spiritual journey, God spoke to you out of the NIV, and now it's like if anybody preaches from anything but the NIV, let me tell you something, that's not... Come on, there are churches who will preach to you that the King James Version of the Bible is the only version of the Bible and anything but the King James Version, you're going to hell. Why? And it's, it's, to be honest with you, it's not scriptural. I mean, I guess it depends on what translation you're reading, but... <laughs> It was all a translation from the scrolls anyway, right? So, but but they, what really has happened is they become nostalgic over it. Well, that's what my daddy read and my granddaddy read the, the King James Version. And that's, that's the one for me. And that's perfectly fine because you're nostalgic over it. The these and thou speaks to you because when you heard it as a kid, that's what spoke to you and that's what resonated. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But what happens is we try to make a gospel out of our nostalgia. And what we're doing is we're limiting God on what he wants to do and how he wants to speak clearly to a current generation. There are many people today who would take, well, the passion translation, that's not right. And the message translation, listen, if it conveys the word of God, maybe not every word is translated exact, but if it conveys the message and the gospel, Gospel to a current generation in their language, I'm all for it. Because if it's introducing God to a new generation, what's the harm? Come on, somebody. All right. Moving on beyond that. But there are translations of the Bible that we get stuck on. There's songs that we grew up with that we get stuck on. There are memories of church services and how it used to be that we get stuck on. And we compare with what God's doing today with what God did in a previous time or a previous generation. And what happens is it limits our warfare. It stops us from gaining ground. Let me prove it to you. The Israelites, after they came out, they were in, in the wilderness for 40 years. All that God promised them was ground, a future, a land promise they couldn't get their promise because they kept comparing where they were with where they've been they even said well well we had food in egypt we were slaves but we had houses in egypt and god said as long as you compare where you are with where you've been it'll keep you out from where you're going i'm letting it it's hitting right here it's, it's right The longer I've been in the church, the more of that type of attitude that I can have personally. Many of you can relate to that. Why? Because there are some good memories, some good things that happened that God did in our life 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and it's good, they're positive, but the, the, the danger is that we would make the mistake of, of assigning the presence of God to the feelings of nostalgia. Why feel the presence of God when we sing hymns? I feel the presence of God when we sing songs from the 80s. Or I feel the presence of God, <clears throat> just letting you know, 
when we pull out any Darlene Check song from Hillsong in 1990, I feel it in the core of my soul. I will hear the first three notes of Shout to the Lord from anywhere, and I'll come a-running. Well, if we're not careful, what we'll do, here's what we'll do. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. But let me tell you what music is. Music is an expression from God's people on the earth about what he's doing in the moment. If you hear Darlene talk about how she wrote that song, she had a tax bill that they had no money for, and she sat down at her piano and began to cry out to God, and she began to read the Psalms, and that whole song is right there in the Psalms, and it was an expression of what God was doing in her life, and then it caught fire in their church, and it became an expression of their congregation, and it went around the globe, and it was an anthem of what God was doing in the church at that season and at that time, and there was an anointing on it for what God was doing, but can I tell you, God's not there anymore. I'll listen to it all day, I'll pump it, I'll play it, I'll sing it in my car, but the reality of it is there may not be an anointing because when it's an expression of what God was doing in a season. So I can't get caught with my own nostalgia because I get the feels for when I hear it. Are you with me this morning? There's danger in assigning feelings of nostalgia with the presence of God. So worship must be birthed out of an expression of what God is doing and saying to our church in this moment how he's moving. And sometimes that might include some old songs, right? Because why? It, it, it leans into what God is saying in a particular season of ministry. But here's what we can never do. We can never confuse the presence of God with feelings of nostalgia. It will keep you locked in the past and have you miss what God is doing now. And again, I get it because those moments that we had with God, they were powerful. They were real. I wouldn't trade them for nothing. But I'm not going to trade new ones for the sake of remembering the old ones. Are you with me this morning? So you can miss it. I remember when we were moving from our Queen Street facility and moving to the Dillerville Road building the Moravian church who had their church underneath the uh, floor below us in, uh, on Queen Street were coming up to look at our building because they were thinking about leasing it after we left. And, you know, we did what, how we do church. We, we painted some of the ceiling black. We painted the walls black. The stage was black. And the Moravian church necessarily wasn't about that. And that was perfectly fine. But I'll never forget this one lady who was walking in and she stopped at the entrance of our sanctuary and she threw herself up. And I'm not exactly, literally threw herself up against the wall and just had this terrible look on her face. And I said, well, what's the matter? And she said, I can't go in there. I said, well, what? I mean, what, what happened? She goes, the black. The lights, it's like a nightclub. It's not a house of worship. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I get where you're coming from. Oh, well, you see each of their own, you know, blah, 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 and you move on from it. A few years later, I was uh, helping a, or working at a, a uh, traditional church in their outreach program in the city of York, and on a Sunday morning, I went to one of their Sunday morning services, and I'm standing in the middle of their sanctuary, and very traditional, very old school type of, of thing, and I'm Standing there, and I'm looking as the light is beaming through the stained glass windows that surrounded their sanctuary. And I'm watching as those beams of light are reflecting purposefully on all different aspects of their building. And I laughed to myself because I thought, you know, people who get mad because we have lights in church, you all invented it. 
It was, but no, honestly, the, the purpose of the stained glass was to tell a story. When the light would reflect through it, it told a story. Are you with me, somebody? So we've just moved up a little bit, and, and we're telling the story with lights in a different way. We're creating environment. The same thing that they did then. So my, my point is, is, so this lady was so stubborn in, in the way of the, she was thinking of how church should be and how it needs to be because that's what her nostalgia taught her and missed maybe what God wanted to do in a new moment. And now there's nothing wrong with having stained glass in a church. There's nothing wrong with paint building red. I don't care as long as your heart's in it and you're after God. My point is we can't allow those things, whether we're in a traditional church or we're in a charismatic, we can't allow those things to stop us from leaning in to God. Amen. So God's speaking through the prophet Isaiah here, and here's what God has to do. He has to violate their nostalgia because they can't see what God is trying to do in that day and what he wants to do in their future. So she, he has to violate their nostalgia. And even for some people, nostalgia, you can be nostalgic of past pain. Maybe not in a positive way, but you can... Well, you know, every time I've been a friend with somebody, they burn me in the end. And the nostalgia of a past experience will keep you from leaning into a new friendship or relationship. Do you understand what I'm saying? It, uh, preconceived ideas. So other prophecies that God had given through Isaiah came true. The Babylonians came and the Assyrians came and pretty much destroyed the nation of Israel. And again, God had to turn his back because they were worshiping other gods. And the city was destroyed and the walls were destroyed and the temple was destroyed. And here are God's people again. They're, they're in captivity. They're in bondage. And after about 50 years of being back in captivity... The king of Babylon decides, he has a change of heart, and he says, I'm going to let the Jewish people go back to their homeland, and they're going to rebuild. And in comes some big prophets that God sends. Prophets like Nehemiah, who uh, you may know his story of Ezra and Haggai. These are all books in your Bible, and it's all speaking of what happened in this time. But these are all prophets who would go back and help rebuild the city. Nehemiah, you know, he was the one who went in and first launched the thing and rebuilt the walls around the city. And then the prophet Ezra came and Ezra was a priest and went back and was responsible for rebuilding the temple or their church. And then God sent in the prophet Haggai, who was a prophet and had to go back in and rebuke the people because God said, first, before you build your house, I want you to build my temple. But the people ended up building their houses and not the temple. So God had to send in the prophet Haggai and say, you've gotten it wrong. You should be about my house first and then your house. So these are all prophets going in and they're all different seasons and stages of the Israelites rebuilding the temple. But I want to pick something out for you in, in Ezra 3.10 that I hope will help you. Ezra 3 says, when the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple. So again, they're back in the land. Nehemiah's come in. Ezra's come in. These are the prophets, and they're, they're speaking. They're trying to rebuild Israel after this captivity. When they completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow the trumpets. 
And the Levites crashed their cymbals to praise to the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. Two things I want to point out here is the, foundation, the temple wasn't built. Simply the foundation, or the footer, if you will, was laid. Which means all they did is they dug some ditches and put some block in to show the outline of where the temple would be. And I think it's very interesting that in the midst of that, they stopped and they threw a celebration. They had a party about it. And I just want to remind you that sometimes the weapon of your warfare can be that, you know, you're just so preoccupied that you're not where you want to be that you miss where you are. There was no building. There was nowhere to worship. There was, there was no organ. There was no screen. There was nothing. But all they had is a foundation. But in the midst of that, they stopped and threw a party because I'm not where I'm going, but I got to celebrate where I am. Sometimes, so one of the greatest weapons that you can have in your warfare against the enemy is celebrating the little things that God is doing now in your life. Come on, I, maybe you don't have the manifestation of the job. Maybe there's not enough money to meet the bills at the end of the month. But you found 50 cents in your pocket. Praise God, I'm going to throw a party about it. Why? Because it's the small things that if we learn to celebrate will keep us, our eyes fixed on what God's really doing instead of walking around complaining about where we're not at yet. That's big. That will change do you understand when I'm talking about spiritual warfare? I want to take this on a whole different dimension. Because we can prophesy till we're blue in the face and you know, quote every scripture. But if when we close the book and walk out of our prayer room, all we do is mumble and complain about what God hasn't done yet, it stops our warfare. But when I can stop and celebrate the little victories. I love that the line in that song that we sang that it says, we may not win every battle, but he wins the war. The reality is sometimes as believers, we have battles that we didn't win. Healings that didn't manifest. I don't know why, but what I do know is at the end, he wins the war. So what I have to do is I have to keep my eyes on him and say, I don't know why that situation didn't happen. I don't know why that thing turned ugly, but what I'm going to do is celebrate the good things that God's doing in my life. Keep my eyes fixed on him because in the end, he will win the war. This is a key to warfare. Celebrate the process. Celebrate what's going on. Celebrate the good things in your health. Celebrate the good things in your relationship. Anybody who's married to anybody can look and find a thousand things that you dislike and want God to change in the other person. But can I tell you, the atmosphere of your home will turn around when you can start celebrating. You know what? Thanks for that. Hey, I appreciate that about you. And I'm not making eye contact because she's going to be like, I'm waiting. <laughs> But come on, somebody, we got to celebrate the progress, celebrate the small things. So if the enemy can't stop you, what he'll try to do is discourage you. The Bible calls it a buffeting spirit. will cause you to get so worn down, so discouraged, that you just give up. There was a girl who was possessed by a devil who followed some of the disciples around and kept prophesying that these are God's appointed men. These are God's holy men. Well, hey, that's good. Do some PR for me. 
but it was so annoying that the assignment was actually to buffer and wear down the apostles of God, that they turned around and said, demon, come out of her. That's big. I'm going to continue on in that verse. So they, they celebrated the progress. The foundations had been laid. Everybody was, was happy. But now listen to verse 12. But many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. So you have one group of people who see the foundation being laid and they're celebrating and they're rejoicing and they're excited. Look what God's doing. It's happening. It's coming together. He's, he's moving. We're rebuilding the temple. And there's a whole other group of people and it's not because that they were old. It's because they saw the temple that was before and the temple that was before was Solomon's temple. And there was no greater temple than Solomon's temple that was arrayed in gold and glorious and massive in its size. And they look at the small foundation that is nothing compared to Solomon's temple and they begin to weep. And they lost the joy of the celebration. Why did they weep? Not because they're old, not because they're bitter, but because they were clouded by nostalgia of what had been before. Well, that doesn't look like Solomon's temple. That's not how we did it back in the day. That's not how we do church. Some shouted and some sobbed. Can I tell you, anytime God does something significant in the earth and there's a new move of the spirit, some will shout and some will sob. Some will look and say, I don't know where this is going, but I'm going to ride the wave. You know, that's one of the reasons I absolutely love, and we're all sinners before we get saved, but, some, you know, but, he, but people who are like radical sinners, do you understand what I'm saying? Like they were radical for the devil. I love it when they get saved because, man, they are radical for God. They don't got to have it explained to them. They don't got to have it, you know, three points. In a po they don't have to have all of that. All they got to know is, is this what I need? I'm a, let's do it. What? Prophesy. Go speak to people. Win the loss. Let's go. I'm all, I'm all about it. And then you get other people in the church. Well, you know, God's wanting us to change how we do church and be more of a light in the community and try some different things. And, well, well, I don't know. And you might say, well, we're a young church. We're a young, charismatic church. That's not us. All right. We're C. We're C. Just keep this sermon on uh, speed dial there if you can. You know, but honestly, I was, hear my heart on this. At the end of the month, uh, whoever's hosting, Marianne's going to talk about it, but we're going to have what, uh, we're doing something different anytime there's a fifth Sunday. We're going to invite all the kids, except for the nursery, to come in and worship with us, with the grown-ups, and we're going to call it Family Sunday, because we just think it's important for us to worship together. We're still going to have nursery, because I, I have ones that are in the nursery, and I don't know if they'd make it an hour. So anyway, we're going to shorten the service that Sunday a little bit, and, but this month, it's the 29th, and it happens to fall right before Halloween, and so we decided we're going to do something called Candy Palooza. And what Candy Palooza is, is we're going to invite all the kids in our church and kids, we're going to give them invites to invite their friends and family to come dressed in their costumes. 
and come to church and we're going to give them a ton of candy and we're going to have a special service and you're going to be blessed from it. But some of you are like, costume? Huh? Huh? Did you not see the video of the origins of Halloween? Listen, here's what I always say about that. <clears throat> we can let the devil take ground and stand back and say nothing. Or we can speak where the devil's been speaking. I'd rather do the second. I'd rather lean in and speak where the devil's been speaking. And try to take a season and say this is mine. Well, we're going to lean in. We're going to let kids come dress in their costumes and we're going to preach the gospel to them and see them get saved. All right. Well, thanks, one person. The rest of you are still like, costume in church? My God. You know, I, we should, I, you know my mom, how, here's how she did it. We want trick-or-treating. Non-scary trick-or-treating. The lamest costumes there was. But we didn't tell anybody in church about it. <laughs> Nobody knew. <laughs> and we knew you did not bring that up. So anyway, I'm not saying you should or you shouldn't. That's between you and the Lord. I'm just saying is I, if it gets some kids into our building and it lets us preach the gospel to some kids and let them have fun, then I think it's a wonderful thing. So... Anyway, you got a costume, you can wear it. Grown-ups, too. All right. <clears throat> so the prophet Haggai goes on, and he says in, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, Does anyone remember this house, this temple, in its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. And Tim, you can come. So he's addressing those who were weeping, those who wept when they saw the foundation. He's saying, how does it look to you now? Like nothing? Like it's nothing at all? But he goes on to say, and he says in verse 4, but now the Lord says, be strong. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, all you people still left in the land, and now get to work, for I am with you, says the Lord of the heaven's armies. Yeah. Maybe you felt stuck in nostalgia. Maybe you feel like you haven't heard God like you used to hear God, and you haven't felt his presence like you used to feel him. And you know, Maybe there was a day and a season in your life where you just felt so confident in the will and the plan and the purpose of God, and now you're just not sure. Here's the thing about God is he's always moving. He's always moving. And the number one thing that God's after is people. People. I was talking with our elders last night and, you know, we're going to lean in to bringing new people into this house. But I said to them, I said, you know, sometimes I feel like we're one of those first lifeboats that were launched out from the Titanic. If you know that story, the first few, the, the, the boats could hold 100 and some people, but they were simply filled with 20, 30 people. And they just went their way. 
And one of the saddest parts of that story is as the ship sunk down into the darkness and thousands of life of lives were floating in the water screaming for help, they, they refused to return because they were afraid that they would be swamped and that they would sink. And sometimes a church can fall into that. Well, what if other people get into the boat that are different than me? What if it changes the atmosphere? What if it looks different? And out of fear, we keep our boats floating away from a world that's lost and dying. So I'm like, God, what is it that you need us to do? What can this church and this group of people do to to get in our lifeboat and start pedaling back to the sinking society and the sinking world who's lost and drowning in their sin that will spend an eternity in a place called hell if we don't offer a life raft to them. And I know the fear that comes along with it. Well, they're, they're going to say we're, we believe in hate speech and, and they're going to call us crazy and, and Christianity's mocked anymore. And, and I don't want people to know. I don't, it feels so scary. But if we do nothing, lives will be lost. So, again, I submit to you this question. Is it Satan buffeting the church? Stopping the church? Or is it the nostalgia of a church that refuses to be uncomfortable and row its boats back to a sinking, dying world? Don't allow nostalgia to cloud what God wants to do in a new season. I don't know what all he's going to have us do. I don't know what it will all look like. All I know is I'm all in. I'm all in. Are you all in?